0: Hello and welcome to episode 136 of the 1099 for the week of March 5th, 2018. I'm your host, Josiah Renaudin, and with me today is an actor, show host, and podcaster with shows like DLC, We Have Concerns, and The Slash Filmcast, and very likely the busiest dude in the games industry, Jeff Kanata. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, man. Thanks, thanks for having me. No, absolutely. Uh, it's funny. I could have kept going on with your bio, and at this point, your bio could be considered a short novella with how many <laughs> different things you do, and I, I mean that as a compliment. Just to hear it from you, I could, I'm curious.
1: What's a normal Jeff Canato week look like? How do you fit everything in? Well, scheduling is my biggest challenge. I mean, that is uh, that is the the thing that gets me the most headaches. Honestly, is uh, where do I fit things in? But I like to tell my wife. Uh, I don't have one job that pays the bills. I have, you know, 10 little jobs that add up to paying the bills. So, uh, I you know, little baby steps equal one big human step, I think.
0: It, does that lead to 70 or 80 hour weeks? Like, I, I've had that life at times where you have multiple small jobs that lead to the bottom line, but then you can kind of get a little bit lost in each one. And suddenly, eight hours with this job, two hours with that job, and you're like, oh, God, it's – it's nine o'clock and I'm still working. Is
1: that happening often for you? Well, it's interesting. I don't really parse it quite that way. Um, maybe I should. Maybe that's a, <laughs> a weakness of mine, where I should really just carve out specific hours as work hours. But I don't ever think of working or not working. It's just always working, really. I, it's and that's. I don't mean that to be a uh, <laughs> woe is me type of statement. It's. <laughs> it. I love what I do, and so I never. I never. Th- feels like work but it also is tough because I have a wife and a small child and another one on the way and um, sometimes it's hard to explain that th- there are no off hours really. It's always – there's always something else to be doing um, which can – if in, in, internally in my mind is not a problem but it can be tough when other people are trying to interface with me uh, in, a, in a family environment.
0: Yeah, I, I talked to Greg Miller recently about this because, you know, when you start something like kinda of funny, it, it's it's a passion of yours and you have these people supporting you financially. So there's this pressure to I need to keep making this bigger and better and because it's my own thing that represents me, he's working on it all the time and just that process of how do you know when to turn that off? When you go home yeah. and you see your wife and your dog or your kid or whatever your situation is, just to have like the the wow. understanding that we can't just I can't constantly be thinking about this because I'm constantly thinking about this then I can never be a husband or be a father or just be a regular person. And I, I, I assume, I mean, you have all these different podcasts, all these different people you're talking to. Is there, are you always looking at email? Are you able to turn email off or Twitter off at this point?
1: No. <laughs> Short answer, no. Uh, I spend a lot of time answering emails, coordinating, scheduling. I mean, that is a uh, The dream, right? A dream is to have the the personal assistant, but that's that's far out of reach at this point. But you know, it it is I'm my own personal assistant, and that's that's a large part of the work part. The stuff that feels like work is the coordination, the spending time in Google Calendar. The oh man, that conflicts with that. How do I move this stuff around? All of that stuff can be a little little intense.
0: Yeah, especially when you're doing podcasts and you're inviting guests and they're suddenly right. saying yes at 9 p.m. When you're like, oh, well, now we need to coordinate this right now because I know they're online. And you know this better than anyone, but film, games, and comedy are all exceptionally competitive when it comes to podcasting. I think in most cases, I would like to think in most cases, quality reigns supreme in the podcasting world. But it's hard to convince people to add a new podcast to the rotation unless there's a smart hook, unless it goes beyond I We're just... Two people talking about film or two people talking about games you usually have to kind of have a bit of something to stand out. So before you started any of these podcasts, did you map out how you wanted these shows to be different? Maybe a certain angle that seemed fresh compared to what else was out there?
1: I wish I could say that I did. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, Mostly I went from what I would want to listen to mm. and um, allowed them to sort of grow organically. I It's hard. I, I get asked the question a lot what advice I would give to people who want to create a podcast or just starting out. And my answer is always uh, build a time machine and go back to 2006, because <laughs> that's honestly the secret of my success is that yeah. I I just sort of did it at the right time when when very few people were doing it. Um, doing it now, it, yeah, I, I think you're right. Those challenges are really there. And I'd like to think it's a meritocracy, but it, it really isn't. It, there's a lot of great stuff that a lot of people don't know about just because there's so much out there and it's hard for things to bubble up. Um, I, I think about the things that I make in terms of what I'd want to hear, what feels right to me and speaking honestly, like I think, I think honesty and um, authenticity are the currency of the internet, right? If you, if you speak about, I always tell people if, if you would do this anyway if no one was listening, if you would have these conversations for yourself, if that's an exciting thing to talk about anyway, yeah. then it's probably going to be a, a good podcast that people would want to listen to.
0: I think that's a smart mindset to have. And what you said before about um, some, creating something that you want to listen to, I think that's one of the f- biggest first steps in ever sort of creating this type of stuff where y- y- the honesty with yourself of just... If this wasn't me, would I listen to this show? Or why should people listen to the show if they already have this regular rotation of games podcasts that right. that they have because there's so many out there. Even like I am a massive giant bomb person, but I still barely find time to listen to the bombcast every week because there's so many other things I'm trying to listen to. So trying to break into that rotation I think is super difficult. And yeah, like I I um there's a the Final Games where I have a friend who does desert island games where he brings someone on like a michael pachter or a neil Druckmann or someone like that and it's like if you're on a desert island what are the eight games you would bring that you play for the rest of your life and i think having hooks like that at this point is since we're not starting in 2006 or 2007 yeah is kind of the way to do it and there's varying success but uh it seems like a smart way to go about it um did you ever get confused when you were younger or coming up with what you actually wanted to do full-time because you had a call about games in the past a bunch of work in the theater started doing stand-up comedy and right now you you balance that all which is impressive but as you were going along did you ever feel like you were going to be forced to buckle down and choose something maybe your parents said you got to eventually fix something or friends was there this moment where you're like if i spread myself too thin i'll never get into
1: one area full-time I live that moment every day. That is, <laughs> okay. that is not a moment that I passed through and got on the other side of. That is, I think, one of my great weaknesses and a, and a flaw in my character is that I want to do everything. And I, I truly believe that if I had just focused on one thing and and done that to the exclusion of everything else and really decided what I wanted and made it a, a singular goal, I would be much more successful than I am. Honestly, uh, and it's it's something that I have struggled with a lot. I have friends that really were self aware and knew exactly the thing. Not not just I want to be X. It's I want to be a very specific kind of X, hmm. and. Do a very, very specific thing, and the more specific you can get about that, the more focused you can be, and the more successful I think ultimately you will get quicker. And I have always had so many different interests and in so many in being pulled in so many different kinds of ways that I think that was to the detriment of of my career in a lot of ways. And um, I, I I don't mean to uh, say that I'm not happy where I am. I I'm certainly enjoying my life and the things that I get to do. I'm very very um, lucky to to be where I am. But I think that if I had said, I just want to be, I just want to work in the theater in New York and get to Broadway. You know, like if that yeah. had just been this, my one goal, I think I could, probably could have done that. But I was like, no, I want to do all these things. Maybe I want to do TV and I kind of want, I, I love Shakespeare. I want to do some Shakespeare. Oh, I like th- this whole internet thing. Oh, I'm very into video games. <laughs> all of these different things pulled at me. And, and it is, um, it's, it's great because i get to do all kinds of different things and my as you kind of framed this conversation at the beginning my week is really varied and full of lots of different kinds of things and i find that very stimulating and very satisfying but ultimately i think it also holds me back in a in a strange way
0: but couldn't you also argue that everything you do kind of fuels the next thing where your podcasting fuels your acting your acting on tv could fuel theater work i know for me my theater experience from when I was younger helped me as a podcaster, which helped me be a better public speaker, which the podcasting helped me understand this industry more and games in general, which helps with other jobs I want to do. Couldn't you kind of argue that everything, even if you don't become Broadway actor or the, the front man for the biggest TV show on Netflix, couldn't you kind of argue everything's feeding into the other thing?
1: Yes, I and I do thoroughly believe that work begets work, and uh, it's good to just be be going and doing and making and I I've lived by that mantra very very much and been I've sort of followed the things that have tended to work for me instead of beating my head against the things that haven't been been working um and I think there's a wisdom to that I think there's a um, a mode of working that has been effective for me but I'm torn because I think that what how how you frame the last question is is very accurate. Like there are those moments where it's like, oh man, should I be doing this or should I be doing that? And I can't do both. So I have to make these decisions and I've never been great at recognizing in myself, which is the best move or which yeah. I even want more. It's like, boy, I really want to do both of those things.
0: So. <laughs> and it's, it's a weird double-edged sword there. Cause it, it's, it's difficult when you are balancing all those things, but if you have passion for all of those things and this I don't want to get too existential suddenly but could you think you, you could even be happy if you were just doing one do you think really maybe the best way you function is putting a little bit into all these things because I couldn't imagine you suddenly doubling down and being like I am now an exclusive podcaster and that's it I feel like you would go
1: crazy not doing the other things you love i I mean I guess I I'll pay you your your session fee for my psychology. <laughs> I think this has been very helpful this for me. This one's free. Appreciate- the first yeah. one's free, and then moving forward, we might have to add something. <laughs> no, I, I think that's, uh,
0: that's, that's a great way to look at it. The stereotype that goes along with people who play games is you always imagine someone who isn't exactly the most outgoing or public-facing, which isn't always the case, and it's changed because what, what the hell is a gamer anymore anyway? But as someone who played a bunch of games yourself when you were younger and now, was it hard putting yourself out there as an actor, and especially in the world of stand-up. Like we just mentioned, you had all these passions coming up. But when you think of someone who is in junior high, high school, play a lot of games, you don't think that dude is probably hilarious and very comfortable in front of people. Did doing these different things like acting, like stand-up, break you out of a shell, or was that shell never there to begin with?
1: I think, paradoxically, my way of dealing with the... Being an introvert and being – well, I was never an introvert, but being uh, the kid who didn't have friends and mm. wasn't popular and and felt bullied and and was a nerd. Back when nerd was a bad word, like I grew up – now nerd is this this thing that people call themselves with pride. But when I was a kid, <laughs> yeah. uh, if, if someone said that word, I would like break out in a sweat and I would feel – I didn't want people to talk about it because I knew it was me and I knew it was bad. And that feeling – of, you know, not, not fitting in and finding solace in fantasy worlds like video games and comic books and genre. For some reason with me, the out was to be more, uh, more in front of people, more extroverted, more. Um, I, I was always comfortable getting up in front of people and being silly. And I was always comfortable, having the focus on me and I was always comfortable speaking in front of people. I never understood that thing where people were like, oh, my God, I couldn't I couldn't speak in front of a large audience. I was like, throw me out there. That's all I want to do. <laughs> and I don't know why. Maybe it was this abstraction that let me not have a one-on-one, they don't like me kind of feeling. It was more like – it's just this large group and I can make some of them laugh and I can make you know some of them listen to me. And uh, I feel like there's a safety in that paradoxically but – um, I don't know, whatever quirk of my particular nature that is, it it revealed itself as being very comfortable in front of people and in and people watching me. So I don't know. I don't know if it's a good it, thing or a bad thing. <laughs> I, I th- it seems like a good thing because I know for me,
0: and I'd like to know your opinion on this, I – When I was doing public speaking versus acting, I had this preference for doing theater because I wasn't playing myself. I was playing a character. So there's a certain aspect of if you suck as an actor, then, yeah, people are going to make fun of you, but you're not really putting yourself out there. You're putting your representation of a character out there. But when I would go in front of a college class and do public speaking, I would do fine, but I would still suddenly – have way more likes in my speech or shake when I'm like I well, I don't know why this is happening. I've been in front of big audiences before. Did you ever have a preference between playing a character and being yourself?
1: I don't think it broke down quite like that for me. I I, I enjoyed playing a character, but I also didn't mind being myself. I I am um, I've kind of always felt comfortable speaking in front of people, and I don't I don't know where that comes from exactly. It's not like that was encouraged when I was a kid or there was opportunities growing up for me to do stuff like that. It just, I don't know where it came from. I do think it, part of it may have been a defense mechanism where the way I diffused bullying or uh, feeling awkward even was by trying to make people laugh. And, uh, I think that that's how it manifested. Did, is stand-up comedy
0: some of the scariest shit you've done so far? Because I, I talked to Nick Scarpino about it, and he's doing live shows all the time for Kind of Funny, and I feel like there's a different level between, not that it's harder, but it's very different between theater, acting, and then actually going up and trying to make people laugh. Did that also come naturally to you, or was that something where you had to bomb so many times to eventually be like, okay, now I'm starting to get this?
1: Well, honestly, I haven't done too much actual solo stand-up. My Most of my comedy stuff is improv and in mm. groups, so uh, yeah, I mean I, I don't even have the the experience to, to comment on that, but I think a lot of that comes from maybe that yeah, that is the hardest thing. And I, I liked having the the security of being up there with a few people. I mean, I've done I've done a lot of uh, stuff that you could consider stand-up, but not in the like going into a club by myself, walking up on stage doing the thing. And I, I agree with Nick, that is some of the most harrowing It makes me sweat just thinking about it. Yeah, with
0: with the with the groups, if suddenly things go really wrong with your improv, they can pick that up and make that be the funniest aspect of the entire show. Where like if you're if you're tanking, they can really help you out. When you're tanking alone, you're like, I don't know if I
1: could turn this ship around. And there's a, there's a solace in the fact that we're a team. And we, we, if we tanked, we all tanked together. And it was a team effort. <laughs> and we can all go to the bar afterwards and be like, whoa, that was a rough one. And if it's just by yourself, you're like, oh, I suck. I must suck. <laughs> there's no other explanation, you know? So, uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely, um, intense.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I'd be able to recover from just completely eating shit on stage for like a solo (laughs) thing, because of course, everyone does it at one point, even the most successful people, but it'd be like, I could never go back on this, I am not great. Uh, Even (laughs) if you never really had like a lot of anxiety being in front of people and you always wanted to talk, at what point did you and this could be an ongoing thing too, did you realize that you were good at this? At what point did you go from, I'm enjoying talking to, I actually think this might be a skill or talent
1: of mine? That's a great question. I don't know if there was one moment. Um, I know that I started college as a computer science major and didn't didn't ever consider even the possibility of having a performance-based career. Uh, It just didn't seem like the thing people had careers in. Um, and I thought I was going to, my goal when I went to college was I'm going to get a computer science degree and I'm going to work in special effects. Like I knew I wanted to be involved in the entertainment industry, but I dreamed of working for ILM or something like that. And I took a class, I went to a, uh, a college, a liberal arts college that I had to take a bunch of electives as part of my curriculum. And so I knew I enjoyed acting. I had done a little in high school and, I took an acting class, and it turned out that the college I happened to go to, which is UC Santa Barbara, had a very, um, very intense uh, sort of pseudo-conservatory program. Mm. So they had an acting program that you had to apply for, and it was a a big, like, sort of separate off from the, the rest of the college. Anyway, one of the professors who taught in that conservatory program, he taught this this intro to acting class for the regular populace of the of the school, also, and I happened to be in his class, and he was like, "Hey, if you want to do this for a living, you could do it." Yeah, and I was like, "What?" He's like, "Yeah, I, I think you could do it." He said, "If, if sometimes was that's all you about need about to hear too." Yeah, and and I had this uh, crisis moment of like, "Oh my god, I want to do this more than anything in the world," and I just nobody ever told me that it was a viable option, and um, so I had this like, you know tear-filled call with my parents like I think I want to change my major to theater. <laughs> <laughs> that's a hard one to convince parents of. Yeah, man, and to to their credit, my parents uh, were like, "Okay, you know, uh, if that's really what you want to do, we'll support you." And I I made a promise to my dad on that call that I would never ask him for money. I said, "I promise you if if you let me do this, I will never ask you for money." And I've I've held that promise and I've been yeah. very proud about that, but um, so I think somewhere in there is the answer to your question. Like somewhere in there, it wasn't all me going, wow, I'm really good at this. It was somebody else going, hey, I see something in you and I'm going to put this little seed of confidence in there. And that grew into feeling like I was capable of of you know having a life in it. It's
0: incredible what one person can do in that way for you, and they will probably never realize it unless you tell them a thousand times that you're like, this is the moment that things shifted a bit. Because you can tell yourself so many times that I want to do this or I think I'd be good at this, but it's as soon as – I mean, for me, it was it was like Kevin Van Hort at GameSpot talking about one of my reviews that I'd sent him and him saying like this was – Your best, like this was legitimately good. Me being like, Oh my god, I this is the greatest thing anyone has ever said to me. And to him, it's it's you know, probably he's being nice, but for me in that moment, that was the oh, I can actually do this professionally moving forward, and maybe I don't suck at this. And I would assume that's just especially with acting, even at like a high school or college level, as soon as someone says you should consider doing this uh, more seriously, that's when things can switch for you. Uh, you mentioned before never really. Kind of considering this as a career previously, not really thinking this could be a possibility in terms of maybe podcasting or hosting or anything like that. Did the game industries move, and I know you do a lot more than game stuff, but did the game industries move toward more personality-based coverage and video in general really play right into your hand and what you were building up to? I mean, way when you started, this type of coverage... It didn't really exist. The, the GameSpots and the IGNs, the Game Informers, the EGM. It it was a lot of writing stuff, review, reviews, previews, and podcasting was starting to happen at GameSpot. But it it didn't seem like this cottage industry or something that would blow up. But now that video and podcasting is huge, was this was that a surprise for you? Was that sort of just a
1: right place, right time? I guess, uh, I, I mean, the first job I ever had in my life when I was 14 was uh, writing a column uh, reviewing video games. And so I was always open to the idea of of writing. I liked writing. And that's kind of how I got into the industry first and got familiar with how companies in the video game industry worked instead of just sort of looking at games and playing them and liking them. And, and there was a big period there. Then I went off to college and I got into acting and, and I sort of put that all on pause, but I do think some of it was serendipity in the sense that the industry came my way, but I never really thought about it like that. I just, you know, when I got into covering video games um, on video, there weren't many people doing it other than G4, right? The, uh, The G4 network. And I was looking at the G4 network. I've since become friends with almost all the people that worked on G4 at that time and I don't mean to say anything disparaging to them, but uh, I, would, I would look at G4 and go, I, this isn't speaking to me. Yeah. I'm somebody that loves video games, and this is ostensibly a channel made for me, and yet they're not speaking to me. They're sp- kind of speaking down to me a little bit. They're kind of speaking at me. And yeah. I feel like the kind of thing that I would want to watch isn't, doesn't exist. And so I wanted to make it. I was like, well, if it doesn't exist, I'll make it. Uh, And that's about the time that I met uh, Dan Trachtenberg and Alex Albrecht, and we started doing the Totally Rad Show. And Totally Rad Show was kind of our answer to G4. It was, hey, here are a bunch of guys that don't make jokes about the kid in their basement playing video games. We are the kid in the basement playing video games, and we love that. We are proud of it. We are we want to raise that up and and make that the coolest thing that could possibly be, and revel in our shared love of pop culture, and uh, that has since. It's kind of hard to explain that because 2006 doesn't seem like that long ago. But at that time, <laughs> I mean, that was just 12 years, I guess. Like, I which guess. is weird when I say that out loud, oh right? Yeah, it's a Don't. dozen years ago. God, yeah. So, but at that time, you know, the geek culture, such as it is is ubiquitous now. I mean, we own everything. The biggest movies in the world, the biggest books in the world, the biggest TV shows in the world, they're all geek culture. But that time, that was just starting. And it wasn't the case that everybody just a priori agreed that geek stuff was good. Uh, and I think the fact that we were kind of on riding that wave of kids understanding that we can all love this stuff together and not feel embarrassed about it. Yeah. Uh, that was, I think, um, the the thing that we wanted to bring to to video. And because we we weren't really seeing it, that's why we wanted to make it.
0: It's funny. Now that superhero movies are all over the place, it feels like forever that geek culture, quote-unquote, has just been in the mainstream. But it wasn't that way. And you are right about something like G4, which felt like this channel built for people like you and me. Or here's this uh, this amalgamation of all these different things that we love, whether it be movies, comics, games, everything like that. But there was a tone to it and still this ha-ha geeks or this specific way attitude that... Even a channel like that wasn't good at. They were, they were still really weird on the tone. And I, I've had Adam Cecil on this podcast since then. And he, he, I always thought he represented that certain crowd in a positive light. But when the channel is asking you to do something, it's hard to break away from that. So yeah. it had to be an exciting time for you because now, like we said, there are podcasts all over the place and it's an entirely different landscape. But in that moment... Being able to see an opportunity and realize the thing I want isn't there, that almost feels rare. And you're talking about people asking for advice for how to get into podcasting earlier and be like, "Ah, oh, well, time machine back in 2006. But that's kind of, even if it is a flippant comment, it's super true because the things that you don't really have those moments now where the thing you want isn't there because there's so many versions of everything at this point. If you were, and this is a hard question to answer, if you were starting a brand new podcast today and let's say you didn't have maybe the name you do where people, you had to kind of help people discover you. Would you have a tactic for this? Would you go a similar route you did in 2006? Or would you have to do something wildly different to grab attention and fill a void
1: that isn't there? I don't know, I, I think that that's a great question. i I think there's definitely potential in an area that you and I may not even be aware of that yeah. and the reason there's potential is because you and I aren't aware of it, you know. <laughs> um, but I also really believe what I said earlier, which is the key to success isn't being tactful and and strategic about your your market niche. I don't think. And even the way I say it, like, oh, there wasn't this thing there in 2006 so we made it, it wasn't, it wasn't because that was our, we didn't envision, well, we'll fill the void and then we'll be hugely successful. We just went, oh, it falls to us to make it. We have to do it. Like nobody else is doing it. So let's do it. It, it wasn't, it didn't feel as, um, as well crafted as that. It was just a, an idea that we, we thought we could do. And and the thing that I said earlier that I will fall back on is, it really comes down to the thing you would do anyway, the thing you would want so badly to do, the thing you you will do because nobody's paying you and no one's listening. Like you just would do that anyway. It's the the passion for me is the key, and I think people are drawn to that. And I think as hard as it is to break through and as hard as it is to get attention right now. The only thing you have is your passion for whatever you're talking about. And yes, it's a very crowded marketplace to talk about video games and pop culture and any of this geek stuff. But if that's what you are into more than anything else and you feel like you have a a voice you can bring to the conversation, then I'd say go for it and and why not?
0: Were there any early on when you started this games or – geek culture podcasts or shows out there that you tried to model yourself after. I'm guessing 2006 was right around the time where the hot spot was going, where on the spot was going, and that felt pretty unique at the time. Were you looking at those shows, or was this more a response to things like G4, like you mentioned before, where you're like, they're not doing what we want, and we're going to do the thing that we've wanted?
1: Yeah, no, I don't think we really were. I, I guess I was most influenced by... Uh, One Up Yours, the the podcast, Um, even though they weren't doing video, that feeling of really knowledgeable people all sitting around having a conversation among friends. It was a show that I loved and, again, have since become good buddies with all those guys and did a show with Garnett for years. Um, But at at that time when I was like working my day job, I would come in listening to One Up Yours and just feel like, oh, my God, this is the only place where I can hear this kind of content. And then when we started creating our show, I think it was – because it was Alex Albrecht uh, and they were doing Dignation and Dignation was this huge success. I think we were influenced in a large sense by that show because the whole two guys on a couch talking about a thing was just starting. And we were like, oh, we'll be three guys on a green screen talking about a thing. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's I think how we how we built the show. But beyond that, it really was organic. It really was – what do we want to do? I mean, we started, we all became friends playing Dungeons and Dragons. We met playing Dungeons and Dragons. We became buddies. And then we would have, we would play Dungeons and Dragons. And then afterwards, we'd all go get lunch or something. And we'd have these really knockdown, drag out discussions about comic books or the movie that we just all saw or uh, a video game. And, At a certain point, we turned to each other and we're like, you know, this conversation would be useful to other people. If other people Mm. were watching it, I think they would like it. And that's how the show came about. It it wasn't so um, like, okay, let's make a show. What should the show be about? Let's Okay, well, let's make it about video games. It was more like, we're having these conversations. Let's just film them and see if people (laughs) dig it.
0: Yeah. And that's, I think, especially with a show like One Up Yours and for me, The Hotspot back in the day. It felt like you were listening in, and even though you weren't participating, it almost felt like you were participating on conversations amongst friends. And even in those cases, I, I've i now, since then, gotten to know Jeff Gertzman and Brad Shoemaker and different people like that. But it's weird. I felt like I was friends with Garnet Lee, even though I've never met him before. Yeah. But it was just like the way they talked, the way they felt like they were including you in this conversation that, like you said, they were already having. But they're not being like, hey. Come over here and listen to this. And then you give your opinion, even if you're screaming in your car or at the gym about the specific topic and how, no, this game isn't that good, or yes, this game is better than the other one. And that was a lot of the early success of that sort of uh, things. You mentioned earlier kind of this level of comfort you have in general, speaking in front of people and speaking your mind. And you're very outspoken on Twitter when it comes to politics, which I appreciate. And we are now approaching this point with how insane everything is, where it's almost impossible to not speak up. Yeah, that's uh, how I feel. But has there, <laughs> but has there ever been any trepidation about being so open about where you stand on certain issues? And in a lot of ways, you're your own boss in a lot of these different ventures. But have you ever gotten blowback from anyone you've worked with about things you have said on Twitter?
1: Oh yes, oh yes. But um, and I, I think if I were uh, smarter and more uh, concerned with my career as a as a You know, a positioning it in a certain way. I think it it wouldn't be wise for me to hold as stringent positions as I do on on Twitter. But I, even before the Trump era, I definitely was outspoken. I know we made a a big point um, on the Totally Rad show. Even in the first few years, every time there was an election, we would uh, it it make the show very much in favor of voting. And we would be very conscious about not telling people how to vote or you know what side we were endorsing but making a statement about getting involved. And I I moved from just getting involved to <laughs> having very specific views because I think the world <laughs> has has gone bonkers but um it's not probably not the the best course and I've definitely gotten gotten blowback and i probably lost a lot of fans and followers because of it but i feel it's a responsibility that i have if i have anybody listening to me i think it's a responsibility as a citizen to stand up for what i believe in and speak out against things that i think are are important um you know i i I don't think that it's I don't believe the the refrain that uh, you should just stay in your lane and and you know entertain me, talk about your video games and and let me live my life how I want. I think that I need to be my entire person. and I think yeah. my authenticity for what I'm speaking out, you know, for what I'm speaking for or against in any area, in any on, under any topic, is informed by every other topic. You know, I don't just like a video game in the abstract. I don't like it in a vacuum. I like it because of who I am and how I think about the world. And who I am and how I think about the world is relevant in all of those things. And if that's not your jam, then don't watch my stuff or listen to my stuff. It's, it's, that's fine. I, I will accept that if you don't want to listen to me because of something. But I also feel like there are quite a number of people – I mean if you look at reviews of any of my shows – there's going to be a percentage of them, almost exclusively the people that give me, you know, like the one star rating on iTunes or whatever. <laughs> yep. It's almost exclusively people like, I can't stand his politics. And I would <laughs> retort that in every case on the shows that the <laughs> those people are talking about, it is a, the tiniest fraction of time spent on any one of those issues. It is, it is, yep. you know, in a two hour show, it is maybe a minute and a half, you know, uh, but, but that's the world we live in where people can't have any ideas challenged or have any kind of serious discussion. So it's it's frustrating, but I find it to be a responsibility that I won't shirk from. When
0: you're now getting – when you're finding people in games media or podcasting or videos or whatever that you like, you should be getting their whole person. Like people – enjoy these people not just because of the articles they write or the reviews they write if you like kind of funny and greg miller you want to know about like oh the cooking he does or he likes comics you don't just care right. that he likes video games you almost you follow their life somewhat how you follow someone on twitter and you get a little bit of everything on there and just the notion that you should stay in your lane I mean, we've been dealing with this stuff with athletes lately where people don't want them to talk about politics. Like that's It's a human who has opinions about things, and if you follow them, you can't just subscribe to one side of them. You're subscribing to the whole thing. For a show like uh, DLC, which you do have guests on, have you had any issues where some people will say no to your request because of how outspoken you are? Again, I don't know if a lot of the people you invite are going to be Trump supporters. I, I don't even – Trump supporters in general, I barely know. Any that I would like to talk to, but like, have you had any sort of, maybe not heated debates, but moments where they're like, I don't want to join this podcast because I'm more right leaning, you're
1: more left leaning. Not a single time, not once. Wow, I have never had you're any inviting where... the right people. Maybe I, I, I'd like to think that's not in, entirely the reason. I'd like to think that it's because we are respectful and we yeah. have discussions, and it's we're never. Again, DLC is a video game show, right? So we're not even there to talk about this stuff necessarily. But if stuff, you know, it's hard to have a weekly video game show and talk about how fun it is to shoot something in a video game when seventeen people are gunned down in a school two days before. You know, like I, I can't just gleefully talk about a video game and not bring up the fact that that's on my mind and and informed my. Decision – I got into so much hot water when we reviewed John Wick because – on the Slash Filmcast because the week that I saw it, there had been a horrific shooting. And it's yeah. hard at this point to find a week in America where there isn't a horrific shooting. But there – I don't remember which one it was sadly but that week in particular was a really jarring one. And I thought this movie is really fun but the mental state I'm in – is not not aligned with what this the the joys of this movie, right? Yeah. And I can't not bring that up. That would be disingenuous. And I I also think to to your point about, you know, personality and and how that informs reviews in video games. I think you and I both lived through an era in video games where places like GameSpot and others would attempt this weird thing where they would say here is our objective review here is here is our our number that we assign to this game and it 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 is as agnostic as we can possibly make it we have no allegiances we have no preferences objectively this is an eight and i think that is insane (laughs) i think that is impossible to do and more than impossible it's not useful It's not useful. I think the job of a a reviewer is not to be objective but is to be extremely subjective, as subjective as absolutely humanly possible. So subjective that you know about me so that you can understand the prism through which my review is being fed to you. Like you need to know a lot about me. I need to talk as personally as possible about my experience so that you can then – parse what I'm saying and understand it through the lens of who I am and all of us should be doing that and you should have different voices speaking in various ways but all very subjectively and so you go oh my god I know who Jeff is I I understand that guy and I get when he says he loves Marvel movies he grew up reading Marvel comics and they mean a lot to him and so there's going to be things about those movies that resonate with him that might not resonate with me or might also resonate with me because I was that guy too or whatever yeah. it is. And so when I say something like, I didn't have fun watching John Wick, not because the movie is awful, but because, my God, watching someone shoot 30 people point blank in the face after seeing it on the news, it, it affected me in a way that is detrimental to my enjoyment of that movie. And I, I know a lot of people are like, get your politics out of the, the – it's like, that's not my politics. That's just me living as a human being on this planet with you and we all have to live together and I'm giving you – my honest feelings as I sat through this movie. If I'd watched it two weeks earlier or two weeks later, I might not have had that experience, but it's my job to kind of not try to filter that out, but to highlight it and make you aware of it so that we can all parse these feelings and move through them together.
0: Yeah, it's the objective review thing and removing yourself from critiquing something I will never understand. It's just, it really shows how much people don't get what, a review is and how the fact that the, the writer is the person who's speaking on this thing, and it's impossible with anything in life to just remove every experience, every aspect of yourself, to strip that away and be like, all right, but objectively, is this game good? Like, that's not a real thing. As someone who's reviewed on IGN and GameSpot and tried to avoid the comments, every once in a while you go in there and you do see people saying, oh, well, GameSpot is too subjective about this kind of stuff. And you're like, first off, you can't just say, to your point, you can't just say GameSpot's reviewing a thing. It's a it's a human. It's a person reviewing a thing. Right. And if there's multiple people at every site who have different opinions, who have different backgrounds, who have different likes and dislikes that lead into this score, and I mean, we can get into an entirely different argument about should there even be a score in situations like this, because what the hell does that mean? Right. Is it just gonna force people to compare, you know, Mario and Zelda, and suddenly it'll be like, oh well, you I think objectively this game is better, and like no, it's expectations go into it, backgrounds go into it, so much goes into a review, and it's why I love games, movie, music, criticism, all the different stuff like that, because for me, and this is something I've talked about in this podcast a lot, having different game critics on, I enjoy reading reviews that I disagree with because it opens my eyes to something that I never would have thought of before, maybe an aspect of that game or movie or show that I just didn't think that deeply about, and this person can explain it. And Maybe in the end, we're just going to end up being like, we just have different thoughts on this entirely, and I think this is, if we're going to use number values, this is a nine, and you think this is a four, but that's okay because you end up having, maybe it reinforces what you thought. It makes you love that thing more. Or maybe suddenly you're like, I don't think I was looking at this right. I was too surface level, and let's go two, three spots deeper into this, especially people of different cultures, different backgrounds, where you get that side that you couldn't get Otherwise, And that's why the people who just shut that shit down and say, I don't want to listen to this because of blank. And I know maybe that makes me sound hypocritical because I'm not exactly the most receptive to Trump supporters. But there's value in so many ways of just actually understanding someone else's perspective, learning that, and then either figuring out why you agree with
1: it or why you're super against it. And we're missing that in our culture. We're missing the ability to hear an idea you don't agree with. And not have it be, you know, pe- <laughs> one of my one of my pet peeves is when people say, "Oh, it was painful to listen to." It wasn't mm. painful to listen to. It wasn't. It, you didn't want to hear it, but uh, exposing yourself to ideas that you don't like is not always easy, but it it is rarely awful, and it is. Uh, it, it, it maybe it will. Reinforce how you already believe because you hear these ideas and you find them so repugnant. That's fine. But maybe there'll be ideas that will challenge you or or hone your own arguments. That All of those things are, are decent. And I, I get into a lot of arguments with my friends uh, who share my ideology in a large respect but get upset at me for giving the time of day to people that they find distasteful and I always say, I'm, I, you know, there's this this thing like, oh, don't give them the platform. Don't give them the platform. It's like, I, it's not about giving them the platform. It's about debating ideas. And if the ideas are sound, my ideas are sound, they will win the day. Like that's that's what it's about. It's about conversation and having a free exchange of ideas and letting the, the best idea win. And so many people, you know, I got into such, Hot water by uh, going on Colin Moriarty's podcast. My God, the amount of people that are ostensibly on my side, quote-unquote, that yeah. threw me under the bus just for sitting down and talking to him about politics. I couldn't believe it, and I feel like this is the problem, right? I, we can't have a discussion, Colin. I had a great conversation, and I got absolutely flamed online by people who refused to even listen to the conversation that we had, and said that I was somehow, you know, uh, elevating these horrible f- ideas or something. And I'm like, we had a debate. I was, <laughs> anyway. I, I I have very strong feelings in that regard. No,
0: and I, I it's it's it is a weird time with that type of stuff because I do think we need to have these discussions with people, and it's not glorifying their ideas if you go on their platform to talk about it. I think there's an issue right now with this calling people out to debate where they're like hey i will fly you out i will pay for this and we'll come on my platform and we'll debate ideas and see who wins like i don't think it should be this gladiatorial style that maybe some people are going to but i i i think what you i actually didn't have not listened to the call and conversation you had and i will actually listen to it right after this because i didn't know you had that but like i think that's I don't see the harm in anything like that. I don't see, did you feel, and this is, I guess, just honest question. Do you feel you made headway by the end? Not that you were sitting there trying to change him as a human, but do you feel like you were actually able to
1: get through
0: to him on certain ideas?
1: I do. I I mean, I don't, I don't know if it was my job to, to change his mind about anything, but I think, you know, people are like, well, how how could you give him the platform? I'm like, he gave me the, I was talking to his audience. I was exposing his audience to my ideas. That's a win that's a win. And I, and I challenged him on some things that he'd said. And I thought we got to a place of understanding on quite a few points that I think a lot of people maybe misunderstood about him or were very upset about with him and and myself included. And, uh, and he challenged me on some, some things as well. And I, I, I really liked it. I happen to think he's a decent guy and I like him and I disagree vehemently with a lot of the things he believes, but that doesn't mean he's a, a, you know, persona non grata. Like a, I can't have a conversation with people that I disagree with. Like it's it's a bizarre world that we're living in now. And um, I don't know. The, the conversation is a bit outdated at this point, but I'm still proud of it and I'm glad we did it and I hope we do it again.
0: Yeah, and I think the more that we just avoid these people and pretend they don't exist and not acknowledge them, the more this sort of schism between people will keep growing to where like we're not even – discussing ideas with each other there's just and we're already super divided and i don't know the solution to this at this point you hope that you know there's been encouraging things lately with just especially with these teens coming out and being so open about things and challenging people and you have this moment of in tragedy there's still this upside of like ah maybe there is a future with this but right now it does feel like there's just people are saying don't even discuss anything with that person and for me i i don't know that would be difficult for me to Debate someone like that, but that's not because I think it's wrong. It's because I think I would just struggle in that moment with that sort of conversation. But I don't see why anyone would be like, that's incorrect. You can't do that because we need to have those conversations. Even if the person doesn't change, like you said, you were speaking to a different audience who might listen to you. They might at least be able to understand where you're coming from and maybe not change
1: their entire outlook, but begin to get it. That's all we have. I mean, we have – there are two methods of changing people, right? Conversation – and violence. And I don't, I'm not into the violence thing. So you got to yeah. do the conversation thing. You, the only way to expose people to ideas is to present the ideas. So I, I don't understand how just siloing yourself and saying these people are worthless and uh, not worth talking to or whatever. And I don't mean that Colin specifically, but whomever, you know, it, it is, we all have to live on this planet together. And I think it's important that we are able to communicate at the very least in good yeah. faith.
0: I, I think so too. It's hard, but we need to keep approaching getting back to that point because yeah. we're just it feels like we're going farther and farther away from it. Um, speaking of different conversations you've had, for a show like DLC, we, we've shared a lot of similar guests. So you've had like Khalif Adams, uh, Abby Russell, um, Andrea Renee, a lot of great people with interesting perspectives. How do you kind of decide who you bring on that show? I feel like more than ever since we first started doing anything involving in games it's there's been just a much greater diversity of voices and people and ideas and concepts that's only made games in general better we're able to hear from more people who again, maybe we just haven't heard those perspectives before and expands what we think and how we feel about these certain topics. So what kind of goes into the weekly guest there? Is it a new guest every week? Are you trying to always look for new people? What's the process?
1: Yeah. I mean, we've had lots of repeat guests, but um, it started out with just me inviting my friends as I think most people, you know, when when they're starting out, they're like, oh, just I'll talk to the people that I know know me and know will do it uh, and as the show gained momentum and uh, you know I kind of ran out of friends <laughs> uh, <laughs> I opened it up and asked the audience for things and there's of course fan I'm fans of of other people's work and stuff and so I reach out to the people that I'm a fan of and say hey I would love to talk to you and and I've had great luck that way with people who are willing to to you know you donate their time but uh, also, I love the fact that I, I always reach out to the audience and say, hey, who am I not aware of? Where yeah. are there other voices that you guys appreciate that maybe – it's a blind spot to me. Um, and that has been so fun of, of people. There's a, We have a subreddit and there's a big thread in the subreddit of, of people and um, it, it is wonderful. I have never <laughs> – this is a weird thing to say but I have never reached out to somebody that didn't respond in a positive way. There's been yep. scheduling things that have precluded them from being on the show, but I've never had somebody say no, I won't do it, or I'm not interested. It's more like, oh wow, I'd love to. Here are the difficulties. <laughs> here are the here are the scheduling problems. Almost invariably, but um, almost everybody that I've asked has has been on the show, and that and that is really cool. And it's cool to to meet new people that way and to hear new voices that way. And um, it's really one of the delights of doing a show like DLC is having a new person join the group every single week.
0: It's funny, earlier you are talking about the idea of a podcast as a conversation as something that you would do even if no one was listening. And when you mentioned guests, I think that's why, uh, thankfully people listen to the show. But early on when you started, for me, it was just, it's okay if people don't listen because I'm just enjoying conversations with people who I didn't know before or I was fans of from a distance on Twitter or whatever their work was at the time. And being able to just talk to them about everything, about their career, about stuff in the industry, and you just learn a great amount. And the um, it sounds like we have the same idea with our subreddits, where you just have a, a big thread where it's like, hey, who do you want to hear from? And the number of people I've learned about who, even if I didn't immediately get in uh, in contact with them to get on the show, I've just started to follow their work. And I'm like, man, I would have never found this otherwise. Like, there's just so many. Um, one of my most favorite recent ones was with, um, I'm going to nail his name, I promise. It's Abu Bakr Salim who did the voice of um who did the the main character for the new assassins creed game by oh right and it was one of those things where i'm like i didn't of course i played the game but i really didn't know anything about him and someone's like here's his twitter handle you should go talk to him and we like dm back and forth and it was one of the best conversations i've had in years and by and like we dm all the time and i'm like this is I don't want to get cheesy about the power of podcasting but it's just one of those things where you're now this person is someone who I respect and I follow and that's the the benefit of something like that and it's just been cool to learn how deep this industry goes it's small industry and in that suddenly you're sending an email to a contact form and the person who gets back to you is someone you worked with five years ago oh, or yeah, you go to e3 and you recognize everyone but also the depths that i've seen the, the number of people who i've learned about from voice actors to youtubers to level designers to people who are involved in sound design you're like there's so much to this and there's so many people who i want to talk to who I really respect and can learn from. And it's, it's exciting.
1: Yeah. It's, it's, there's, there's even these weird pinch me moments, right? Where you kind of oh, feel yeah. like, is this, this is crazy that, <laughs> you know, I, I remember uh, one of the first E3s I went to a long time ago, uh, back when I had to, you know, finagle my way in. Cause I wasn't actually in the industry, but there are, there are ways. If you live in Los Angeles, there are ways to, to get into oh, E3. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, I was at that time. I uh, was, you know, watching G four and kind of thinking about all that stuff and fantasizing about, getting, you know, being more involved in the industry. And I remember seeing Cessler uh, at at the at the show, and I just sort of followed. I've since told him this story, by the way. Um, I followed him for a while. I just wanted to see what his routine at E three was, and he, he's a very fast walker, so it was not easy. Uh, but uh, I was sort of just like stalkering uh, Adam Sessler around E3 for a little while and, uh, you know, flash forward a few years and he like calls me up and is like, Hey Jeff, can I come on your show? I want to talk about, you know, Friday the 13th coming out or whatever. And I'm like, it's a weird thing. Like we're buddies and, you know, and and I can name, you know, a dozen people that it's like that where I admired them from afar and now we're colleagues and it's such a, such a cool place to be in. And it feels, I feel very privileged to, 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 be in the same industry with such talented interesting people
0: it never becomes normal and i hope it never becomes normal for me <laughs> where the yeah. second that this seems like totally normal that uh like again when i talked to adam Sessler for the first time he suddenly turned his skype camera on i'm like looking at adam Sessler in his home that was this <laughs> moment of like i'm very happy that this is still shocking and exciting to me where every time i've ever talked to lauren landing and i get over just looking at his hair because it's so impressive <laughs> right. and actually hear his words and like him responding to my questions i'm like this is the raddest shit that if you would you know, if I tell this to young Josiah that this is going on right now and would never believe it and there's yeah, there's so many moments like that that's just it's it's surreal and a lot of this stuff happens from podcasting and from people just being like, and you're totally right and it's one of the the, the funniest things we probably both get asked all the time I'm like, oh, how do you get these guests? How do you get these people to talk to you? And it is as simple as explaining what the show is and, talking about, here's what I'd like to talk you about. And 95% of the time that person says, I'd love to do that. As long as we can get a schedule down, even if it's three months from now, let's do it. People love to talk about this kind of stuff and they enjoy it and they enjoy good conversation. And like, yes, maybe you need to establish yourself a little bit so they don't think they're, this is a rude way to put it, but wasting their time on something. But almost every single time that person will say, I would love to talk. And that is It's going way back to talking about podcast advice. If anyone does want to do a show involving games and involving guests, there's plenty of people out there who are fascinating and have this wealth of knowledge about things that you don't know about and a lot of people probably don't know about, who are ready and willing to talk. It's they're out there, they're everywhere. And I again, this I've had some of the best conversations I've ever had on this podcast, and that's even if there's one person
1: downloading it, I'm like, this shit is worth it for me. Can I add something to that though? And I I don't I don't mean to Well, I'll just say it. Uh, You you mentioned not wasting people's time. And I Mm. think if there are people listening to this who have aspirations to do this kind of stuff and want to reach out to to people to be on their show, I would add that that's a really key component to it. And I think there's a level of professionalism and preparedness that is a prerequisite. And it doesn't mean you need to have been doing it a long time. It's just understanding what you are asking of people. And I have always been very open – to being on any a person's show, big or small. If they reach out to me and if I can make it work in my schedule, which is not always easy, uh, it, I'm happy to do it. And a quick side note, I will say, and I think you can probably attest to this yourself uh, based on our interaction, uh, sometimes you need to ask me three or four times. <laughs> <laughs> I never mind doing that. I, I, as long as people don't think I'm bugging them too much. It is appreciated. It is appreciated. It is not bugging. And I, that is one of the huge things I had to get over. I always feel like, ah, I don't want to bother people. Ah, they didn't respond. I'll probably do. It's not, most of the time, it's not bugging. It is like, oh, I'm just so busy that this got put into a place in my brain that wasn't at the top. And oh my gosh, I really do intend to do it. But, it's not going to work this week and I can only think about this week and yada, yada, yada. Anyway, so no, that's first of all, thing. yeah, as you, as you approach people, if you're thinking about doing that, don't be afraid of reaching out multiple times, first of all. Second of all, I have gotten into many situations where I have carved out the time, which is, as we've established, not super easy for me to do at this point. I have a a wife and child and a lot of any time I'm not doing anything that I have to do, I want to spend time with them. So carving out time to be on a show is not always the easiest thing to do. So if I do, or if anyone does, I think the minimum requirement is that they feel like that is their time is valued. Yeah. And I have been, unfortunately, in several situations where that is not the case. And you feel like, oh, my God, man, they don't understand that this hour that I'm spending is precious to me. And I gave it to them. And what are they doing with it? They're, it's not, you know, it, it is, a. I think you understand what I'm saying. No, totally. It, I, I, I've been in that same situation where
0: it's just these people who, it, it takes a lot of practice, but it's a lack of organization, a lack of really understanding what, they're asking, and then you, by the end of it, you're like, I'm confused what just happened. Yeah. And I've I've had that situation. Again, it's not calling anyone out. It, it does take time. But when you are grabbing these people who I, you have no idea how much I appreciate, like you giving me this hour, anyone who's done it up to this point, it, it means a lot. So I guess it's one of those, make sure you make that count.
1: Make yeah, sure you make absolutely. that time
0: count, and you do something that's interesting for that guest, for you, and for people who listen. And that's not always easy. None of this shit is super easy, but... Well, I have have loved
1: this conversation. I mean, I'm – Yeah, that's –
0: I I was hoping there wasn't some deep thing at the end where you're like, by the way, speaking of one of those hours I wasted. No, not at all. That would have been – actually, I
1: would have respected that in a certain way. (laughs) (laughs) That is the ballsiest thing I've ever heard.
0: That's actually really, really impressive.
1: No, but when you do – you know, when you do get into a a, a situation like this one, it's – you're – it's like, oh, man, I'm so glad we made this happen, right? And it was – There were – it was weeks of planning and going back and forth and we were talking like, you know, uh, last year about this. That was months ago. Yeah. So, you know, and when you finally get down to it, it's like, oh, yeah, I'm so glad this came together. So I think that if there are people listening that want to do that, I think that is a key point that I, I think too few people bring up is respect your guest's time and make sure it's valuable or valued Yeah,
0: without a doubt. I mean, it just Greg Miller talked about this on our podcast, but I started asking him to come on a year ago. um, And he was just like, sorry, super busy. Get back to me in three months. And every time I would like wait about three months. Like, hey, not to bother you. just want to see if you're still doing this. On like the fourth attempt, he's like, you know what? I totally have a free hour. Let's do this. And he said the exact same thing you did of like, you never bugged me. This was never annoying to me. This in the end was like worth it, and I appreciate you actually like talking to me because ninety nine percent of the time it's just a scheduling thing. It's not the person doesn't want to do it.
1: I I wish I could somehow communicate to everybody that hasn't gotten an email back from me to send me another one. (laughs) You know, like please just send me. Like I didn't intentionally not email you back. That I try to email everybody back, but sometimes things fall through the cracks, and I always worry that there's some person somewhere is like that dick. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I emailed him and he didn't even respond or I emailed him and he said sure and then later on he didn't respond uh, I I always feel awful about that but just like just send me another one just send me another yeah. one
0: if it helps I never thought you were a dick if I, oh, uh, good. I, I didn't really think that I was like man this asshole I'm not going to say <laughs> yes now because he kept not emailing me no I totally it's, it's hard to keep track of emails when you have 800 things going on so trust me i totally get it uh last thing again since i do respect the hour you gave me we're just about hitting the hour mark where can people find you on social
1: media and what are you working on right now that you can actually talk about well um i'm on twitter at jeff canada which is spelled with two n's and one t and um i've got three podcasts that you can listen to right now Uh, One's on video games called DLC that you can find at 5by5.tv slash DLC. Uh, I do the Slash Filmcast, which is about movies and TV shows at slashfilmcast.com. And I do a comedy science show with Anthony Carboni called We Have Concerns. I'm really proud of it. Uh, I think it's it's, uh, one of those shows that even if you're not into video games or movies or pop culture, you'll get something out of. We uh, talk about strange science stories, and then we do improv bits around them. Uh, and uh, it's it's won awards. It's, it's something I'm real proud of. It's called We Have Concerns, and you can find it at wehaveconcerns.com. Perfect. Jeff, thanks so much for doing this. Uh,
0: just from a distance, I've always been a fan of what you do. Um, I, since you started in 2006, and you're kind of like, let's blaze trails and do podcasts. And Now that when I started mine two or three years ago, I had the luxury of seeing stuff that you've done and being able to maybe not model it exactly, but take inspiration from that and see what you've done and be like, all right, I think I know what I want to do and I can use the lessons learned from your shows and other people who've come in the past to do something like this. So I I, I hope that you keep finding that perfect balance between work and life while you're balancing all these different things <laughs> at once. But I really do appreciate what you do. And I think sometimes people who are creative need to hear that. So keep up the great work and hopefully we could talk again in the near future.
1: Oh, thanks so much, man. It's been a, it's been a blast talking to you. So I appreciate
0: it. All right, perfect. Uh, thanks again, everyone for listening. Hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099.